0: Hello, and welcome to another Innovation Forum podcast. I'm Dr. Peter Stanbury, and I'm delighted today to introduce the Chief Executive of RAP, Avidis Seferium. Very kind of you to join us. A Pleasure to be here, Peter. Looking forward to our conversation. Avedis and his organization have been involved in the development of the Innovation Forum Apparel Barometer. We wanted to explore some of the issues because RAP's been very closely involved with the development of this. We wanted to explore some of the issues lying behind that. So to begin with, obviously people can look on your website about the background to wrap. I think the thing that I'd like to focus on is what makes you different from other certification processes. What's your USP, I guess?
1: Well, that's a great place to start, Peter. And as you said, from the point of view of what we do, we are a social compliance certification program and one of several such organizations out there, but we feel quite different from the others on a number of fronts. Chiefly, our operating model is unique. Many of our peer organizations, all of our peer organizations, Our member models, for the most part, driven by that association approach where the brands and the retailers are joining an organization that then has a system in place to monitor their supply chains. There's obviously benefits to association models, and certainly trade associations are designed to to work that way. But we believe that certification and supply chain monitoring really ought to be as independent of that supply chain as possible and so we do not have a membership model uh, we don't operate from sort of a grant or foundation money driven approach we believe in being purely independent so we are A fee-for-service organization, a nonprofit, yes, we are mission-oriented, but we fund ourselves purely through the registration fees the factories pay us in order to go through the inspection process, and we do so without taking money from industry or from other sources so that we are assuring our governance and financial independence when it comes to assessing and evaluating working conditions in the supply chain.
0: I think the other thing that I noticed when you're doing research around the sector is the way you go about training your auditors. Which I think is also another important point, because at the end of the day, any compliance process is only as good as the auditors going in there to actually look at the factories. Perhaps you could say a little bit about that.
1: You're absolutely right. As with any human endeavor, that element becomes the key and and no audit is going to be successful if the auditor on site isn't appropriately trained. We have made that be the core of our back operations from the beginning. As with all organizations that do what we do, we partner with local audit firms to enable factories in a country to have access to audits in a affordable manner. In identifying those partners, we do a first cut assessment of the organization itself. Historically, it always has been the starting point. We don't work with independent freelancers who have no organization to back them up and provide them resources and the, the backing they need to do their work right. But just because a firm is an audit partner of ours does not mean that any auditor at that firm can do an audit for RAP. The individual auditor has to himself or herself also be directly accredited by us. And to do that, they have to go through a five-day training course that we deliver ourselves. We don't outsource that so that we get a chance to actually meet each one of these auditors ourselves, assess them, do the continuous assess evaluation, have them pass the exam at the end, and then every other year Refresher training is required of each auditors that we have in our partner programs to maintain their accreditation. This has been our model from the start. And over the last several years, we've also had the benefit of the emergence of APSCA, the Association of Professional Social Compliance Auditors, whose board I happen to have the honor of of chairing. This is the body that really serves for the auditors the way the Bar Association does for lawyers, for example, professionalizing the space. So we have been able to layer onto our already existing requirements the necessity of having all our partners be APSCA members and all individual auditors be APSCA registered auditors as well. So we've got now this additional resource that we are very proud to support and help further improve the professionalization of this important work that's being done.
0: Picking up on that professionalization point and also looping back to the point you made earlier on about, I guess, objectivity, sort of onto the next issue, which is around second party versus third party auditing. To some degree, any auditing is a good thing because it identifies problems. It alerts people in factories that they are under under the scrutiny, all of those good things. But one is beginning to see a rise in second party auditing. Perhaps you could comment a bit at what you think that implies. What are the respective uses of second and third party auditing? Because obviously they're not necessarily aimed at the same thing, but perhaps you could comment a little bit on that.
1: To the extent that, as you said, any auditing is good auditing, you'd rather have something rather than nothing. But you also need to be careful with regards to what you can attribute to a something, depending on whether it's a second-party result or a third-party result. And and the big difference is that the credibility gap of the old adage, the, the fox guarding the hen house. It is generally a good thing to do some kind of an audit. But if you are the party that has a vested interest in ensuring that the entity you're auditing passes because you want to then place orders there or have, as I said, a business interest there, then it's going to be a little bit hard to take that result and ascribe to it the credibility that you would want to, to make yourself as an independent person, a neutral party, satisfied that the conditions are what they need to be. It's akin in some ways, if you take your own personal health into consideration, right? You want to make sure that you are doing yourself some checks, making sure you monitor your blood pressure or monitor your diet, right? But that does not mean that that's good enough. If you want to absolutely take that to the the right level, you do want to go see a doctor and have them actually monitor you and independently verify the results and have a lab work done and and all that kind of stuff. So that's really, to me, the distinction between a second-party audit and a third-party audit. It's a good check, for Mm. a starting point. And certainly, if you do it right, the second party audit should prevent obvious bad factories from becoming Mm. uh, vendors to a brand or retailer. But to do it absolutely right and to do it with the credibility it needs in order to then tell the public or tell your consumer or tell regulatory authorities that you are indeed doing your proper due diligence, it has to be done by an independent third party.
0: That's a very good analogy because it humanizes it. Because otherwise, these terms become quite difficult to understand if you're not in, not in the sector. As you say, that's not to say that second party auditing is not relevant, but it's more, I guess you'd say it's more as a, an ongoing management tool. It's a way of, of a company understanding what issues it needs to be addressing, but that's not the same thing as having someone outside say, yeah, okay, here's the problem. This is how you sort it out. Well, that leads us on to the next topic, which is just around this explosion, I suppose, we've seen over the last 15, 20 years in the number of certification programs. If It's so, sort of a positive alphabet soup of different processes and standards. And, you know, I've certainly been in the past sitting in factories where they've had to try and meet several different audit standards, which given those are similar, but not quite the same, causes all sorts of challenges within the factories themselves. And also probably from the perspective of consumers, it's not necessarily clear what means what. How do we get to this point? How do we get to the stage where we had so many certification programs? Is there a kind of audit fatigue And what do we do about it? I know you as an organization have published a paper on what you're calling symphonization, which I think is an interesting way forward. So perhaps you could say a little bit more about that.
1: You're right. Obviously, in the last couple of decades, decade and a half, have really seen the emergence of social compliance and an explosion of approaches. I'll talk in a little bit here about some differences within those approaches, because I think that's relevant. They're not all certification standards. They're all different audit protocols or codes of conduct. Not all of them reach the robustness of a certification, and that's part of the problem. But to go back to the beginning and answer the first question, how did we get here? The Truth of the matter is, it's the consequence of the unfortunate genesis of what led to these standards and the fact that the industry honestly got off on the wrong foot. In the late 1990s, leading up to that, the sourcing model in the apparel space in particular had changed significantly away from the original owned and operated approach where a brand would make stuff carrying their label in factories that they owned and they ran to the outsourcing model, right? Where the factory would be occasionally half the planet away, different time zone, different culture, different laws, and most importantly, different ownership, right? And so they would no longer have that visibility into working conditions that they would have had had that factory still been an an unoperated one. As a result, that lack of visibility came back to bite the industry very harshly because in the mid-1990s, several well-meaning and well-intentioned human rights, worker rights organizations orchestrated a series of exposés showing the world that some of these factories were operated by folks who really were taking advantage of that lack of visibility to run what were, in effect, sweatshops. And that wake-up call was rather sudden, rather a rude awakening, and shook the industry In a way that made them all feel like they had to take action quickly, and each kind of doing their own thing. And because it came up in the form of a negative light, it created this antagonistic atmosphere. The brands and retailers kind of felt like they had to protect themselves from these suppliers who were cast as the bad actors, while the NGO space was pointing fingers at the brands and retailers as evil connivers. And so this meant everyone sort of felt like they were drawing battle lines and we have have to then protect ourselves you know say our our standards are better than others and we're monitoring our standards with our own approach and so this is why the industry created these codes of conduct and once you have a code of conduct you then have to have the monitoring program to then check that the code of conduct is being adhered to and everyone felt like they had to do their own thing that's the wrong foot we got off on if you think about audits and you think about from a financial perspective or Returning to that humanizing analogy that I like with with the doctor piece, right? These aren't meant to be bad things. You might not enjoy an annual doctor's visit, but it's not something you should hate having to do. It's something you should think of as as being good for you. If you think of it correctly, it is a valuable exercise. But if you see it as purely a necessary evil, then all you're going to want to do is minimize it. That's sort of, as I said, the wrong foot that we got off on. And, And the result is very much what you identified, audit fatigue everyone kind of going out there and saying, well, here are my standards. They're really not that different from my neighbor's standards, but these are my standards, and therefore I have to be the one to check them with my own people. So you've got factories that you've been in, as you said, uh, having to do multiple audits, kind of asking the same thing, but each one having to be done separately because a separate client demands it. This is probably a good place to make the point I made about the differences in some of these approaches. Uh, Not all of them are certification standards. Now, RAP is a certification standard. We have a protocol, and you actually have to meet all the elements of it. You have to pass the audit in order to be certified. We stand behind that decision and say this factory, we validate that this factory has met the standard. Most other approaches, and there are a few other certification programs out there, but most of other approaches tend to be audit only. Here's the standard. You go, you check, and you get a report. And then it's up to the retailer or the brand to make the decision whether or not the factory is okay by them or not. There's no passing of the audit. Again, to borrow the doctor analogy, it's akin to going and getting a lab work, getting the numbers back, and then figuring out for yourself if they're okay or not. A certification program is when the doctor then looks at those numbers and says, your cholesterol should be lower, something else should be higher. You've got standards you're comparing to and and making an assessment. That's what makes a certification program that much more robust, and not all of these programs are. Which leads me then to your reference to our paper uh, last summer on symphonization, Audit fatigue was recognized as a challenge to this industry 10, 15 years ago, shortly after the explosion that resulted in the cornucopia of approaches that we just discussed. Various attempts dating all the way back then to the mid-aughts. I still don't know what you call that decade, by the way. The O's,
0: the aughts, uh, whatever whatever you call the that. The seems to be an accepted one, but I, just think, I think that's more because it looks good in headlines than anything else. Yes, I think that might be right. So even in that decade, folks had
1: recognized that audit fatigue was real and was not a good idea. It wasn't helping. So attempts to harmonize standards occurred even back then, and they all failed. And we can go, it'll be a whole other podcast, Peter, to sort of delve into each attempt and why it failed. But fundamentally, they all failed for making the same mistake of trying to harmonize by creating a single solution, Mm -hmm. a one-size-fits-all approach, right? And that just does not work in this industry. I mean, this apparel space better than most understands the importance of sizing. Different organizations are at very different places in their journey on the supply chain. So what works for some is not going to work for others. And nothing exists that's going to work for all. So we put this paper forward last year uh, and we called it symphonization because the failed harmonization attempts of the past gave the term itself, harmonization, sort of a negative connotation. So we want to come up with a new word that expressed our new paradigm. And so we, in our minds, visualized an orchestra, a symphony, where you have different instruments providing different elements of what ultimately results in beautiful music. You're not going to get good, beautiful music by just playing a single note, having one answer for all. So we, we say symphonization is the answer. And what it proposes is a new paradigm where instead of every individual brand or retailer continuing to pursue their own proprietary code, they drop that. And we talked a little bit about the benefits, by the way, of doing so from a credibility perspective, mm-hmm. because those are all second party audits versus an independent third-party audit, and instead look to the handful of specialized, professional, independent organizations like RAP and some of our peer organizations that do this professionally and use their services as a menu of options. If you're already a sophisticated player and you've got this large orchestra you have in mind, you've got social, you've got environmental, you've got energy, you've got carbon, different players can provide different answers, or you're a starting brand retailer and, and want to make sure you can map your first tier appropriately and just make sure that social compliance certification is being validated there. That's what synchronization is. The recognition that you're not going to have a one size fits all. It does not not work because it's too complicated. It does not work because it is impossible. You cannot have that approach. So don't try it. Go for this menu of options where you've got different partners providing their expertise in their areas, and together you are able to resolve your supply chain problems, all of which you're doing in a much more efficient way rather than continuing to propose your own proprietary program, which only increases audit fatigue and doesn't give you the credibility of an independent third-party assessment anyway.
0: That, in a thick nutshell, is (laughs) synchronization. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I guess the analogy would be to not quite follow your doctor thing, but another sort of professional thing if you're looking at financial result, it's all very well for, for oneself to say, well, my finances are fine and, and I've met all the legal requirements. But it's quite a different thing that that you have an accountant or a financial auditor saying that of, of, of what you're doing. And if you're a publicly traded company,
1: Peter, you can't say yourself that my finances are fine. They have to be audited by an independent organisation because the government will not simply take your word for it. However well-intentioned and however true that word might be, you cannot have investors make decisions based on information that has
0: not been independently validated. Well, that then leads on to another quite interesting area, which is, as you said just now, we've been going around this loop about performance in apparel supply chains for at least 20 years. And my first gig in the sustainability space was working for Pentland Brands on the whole Sialcutt football stitching scandal back in 1996. That's 25 years ago. Crikey, I'm not really that old. I did it when I was in junior school. Why are we still going around this loop? A cynic would say that too many of the brands, this remains a PR exercise rather than something that they're seriously aiming to address properly. Uh, which might also play into why there's a focus on second party audit rather than third party audit. Because second party audit, you can ask the questions you know the answer is going to be okay to and forget the, the slightly more taxing ones. Whereas, as you say, the certification process that RAP implies is much more rigorous, much more objective, much more third party. What's your view? And I accept that you don't necessarily want to be rude about brands, but are they taking it seriously? Is it window dressing? And perhaps a more positive question is how do you go about engaging brands in that journey from actually, yes, you could spend money on a second party audit, but it's probably not that credible because no one really believes it. Why not just go the extra mile and, and use us? Or as you say, other certifications are available. How do you engage brands in doing that in your work? In my
1: experience, and I also don't want to date myself too much, uh, but uh, <laughs> I've been in this space pretty much throughout its evolution in the last decade and a half. I don't know of a brand that actually goes out there looking for a sweatshop. They don't exist. The cynics will paint this industry as at best callous, but I would submit that I have yet to meet a social director that actually has horns and a tail. (laughs) Nobody wants to go out there and find bad actors, right? What they are not always so good about is checking to make sure that the actors are indeed good actors. I think that's the fair criticism that there is a difference in the amount of attention and the depth of due diligence that certain brands take and others would benefit from doing but don't necessarily quite grasp yet whether they're second party or third parties perhaps a starting proxy the ones that are really serious about it recognize the importance of independent credible assessments and will go the third party route and some of the others might not quite be willing to go there yet and might be more comfortable, as you said, with a set of questions that they can massage more themselves. You're correct in saying that we've been at this for 25 years and we have yet to be able to declare victory. I don't dispute that, but I would suggest that a cynic who points to that and, and just focuses on the negative is missing the bigger picture because just because we haven't yet gotten to what we want to does not mean that we've made no progress. Quite the opposite. I would defy even the most hardened cynic, to claim that factories today are absolutely no better off than they were 25 years ago. I think that is patently untrue. Uh, there's been a lot of progress made in a lot of areas. Now, that's, again, not to say that it's over, we've, we've succeeded. You can point to specific areas and say you know, child labor, for example, has seen tremendous gains. But has it been eradicated? No, nobody can honestly say that. But again, don't mistake the fact that you haven't gotten it perfect with the fact that you've made no progress at all. That's the main takeaway here, that this is a process. We're never going to come to the finish line because your net compliance isn't something that you achieve and declare victory. You know, Again, going back to the doctor analogy, you never say, I'm done, I'm healthy. I don't have to eat another broccoli ever again, right? You're never going to do that. It's a continuous process. And as you age, other things become important to focus on and vitamin supplements come in and all that kind of stuff. We're going to discover these things in our own lives, I'm sure. So it's a process. And what makes it difficult, and this is something I don't think the cynics out there truly appreciate or the consumers truly understand or the regulators have good insight into, just how complex the apparel supply chain is. A lot of the progress that we have been able to make, for example, I would say, you would see at that first tier. And the reason for that is quite simple. That's the tier that most brands and retailers have the most visibility into. They're the ones that you're directly placing an order with. But don't forget, what you're placing an order for is that final assembly, right? The cut and sew, the shirt with your logo on it. Where did the yarn for that come from? The fabric, the dyes. Uh-huh. Beyond that, you know, where did the washing occur? I mean, all the other stuff at tier two and tier three, not to mention anything beyond that, the raw materials, going back to the actual production. The visibility that you assume is there just isn't. I'm not saying that as an apologist for brands. I'm not saying that as somebody that is lamenting. I'm just simply saying that as someone that is describing the reality of the world in which we live in. As we get improvements in technology, as we get improvements in communication, as we build better relationships, you know, we're able to go deeper and deeper into the supply chain. But even so, what it takes to put together that shirt you're wearing or the one I'm wearing is a vast and complicated network that isn't simply a finger snap away from realization. As a critic of the space, have to acknowledge that and have to understand that the progress that has been made and see it in that light. I see this as a cycle that's going to repeat itself. Now that we've gotten this grip on that first tier, we can then leverage that into a grip on the second tier and so on down the line, because the deeper you go, the more complicated it gets and the more widespread the underlying layers are. In short, we have a lot of work still to do, but a lot has been achieved in the past decade and a half, and we're heading in the right direction. So I do believe that you're seeing more and more, to run back to the first point where you started this this part of the discussion, more and more brands and retailers recognize that they can't simply not do enough, certainly recognize that just saying we have a code and expect our vendors to comply with it is not enough, You have to take that responsibility of checking for yourself and then making sure that you're passing on to them the responsibility to check on their suppliers Mm -hmm. and you sort of doing your role in that too. And getting to where the ability of a brand and retailer to do a true assessment and a fair independent assessment is now at an all-time high. Folks that aren't really serious are definitely going to get found out. I still believe they are a very tiny minority. And the folks that are serious but haven't been doing enough
0: are also going to get found out and they have the tools now to be both serious and do what they need to do. There's a number of things that seem to come out of that. One is this sense of almost brands and retailers need to embrace the complexity to say, actually, there's never going to be enough, that there's always going to be more work that needs to be done. You've never reached that finishing line, but actually new problems will emerge either in problems you thought you'd solved and or as you go deeper into the supply chain and maybe is again the disappointment that someone made to be in another interview for for this process is it's about accountability isn't it it's about companies being able to say right this is what we're trying to do this is the journey we think we're on this is what we're trying to do within this year here's how we can be accountable for the steps we've taken which is where a certification and audit process comes in the obvious next question is how has what's gone on over the last 18 months helped hinder put a spanner in the works you know covid's had massive impact for all of us but also for international supply chains. What's your experience been in trying to maintain your audit process? How have you managed to be able to do that? What are you planning for the longer term impacts of COVID on how the apparel supply chains work within that audit and certification structures?
1: Indeed, we're still feeling the impacts of the pandemic. From an audit perspective, uh, let me start there and say uh, the obvious immediate impact was especially sort of the second quarter last year, uh, where all travel was impossible, you couldn't actually do audits. You couldn't do them in the old traditional way of going on site and inspecting factories. Mm -hmm. And so as a program that is factory-based, requiring audits as part of the certification process, we had to make a determination, how are we going to proceed? And we came to the conclusion that for a first-time factory, somebody we've never seen before, who's coming to us for that first certification, it would be impossible to satisfy ourselves that they are indeed meeting our standards and are in a place that we can stand behind and certify that they are socially responsible without going on site. So we had to make the unfortunate call that new factories are going to have to wait. But for factories where we had a history already, we've, we've been there before, we've seen the physical space, we've got that track record with them and are coming back for recertification, we felt confident enough to say we could do a virtual audit that would be all the standard stuff, you know, document reviews, worker interviews and all that. And based on that, if we find that the systems that we had certified last year continue to be operating in good form, we could extend the certification for a certain period of time Mm -hmm. until we were able to come back in to actually do a physical audit once COVID restrictions were lifted. So that was sort of a direct impact. The larger impact helped us emphasize the point in symphonization, which is that the old way of doing things where everyone did their own audits is not only no longer necessary, but it's no longer justifiable either. Because during that same period, brands and retailers who were still insisting on using their own proprietary codes of conduct had the same problem, right? How am I going to visit this factory? Well, I can't, but I still need to do some kind of diligence. So what do I do? Oh, wait a minute. This factory is showing me a WRAP certificate. Let me see if that will suffice for my needs. And guess what, Peter? It did it was perfectly fine. They they recognized that it meets all of their requirements. And so this was a case study in how you don't need to do it a certain way and can absolutely do it in a better, more efficient manner. So that was one silver lining to the dark cloud of the pandemic, if you will. And to me, from the point of view of your question about what the longer-term impacts are, I think that's one of them. The recognition that supply chain efficiency now is truly at a premium. Resiliency is absolutely what, what we're talking about. And so don't go about reinventing wheels. Don't go about doing things just so because you want them done. It really is more about finding an approach that you can live with rather than insisting on one that you will die for. So that's sort of the, the main point there. Now, one other thing that came out of the pandemic, uh, and then maybe worth spending a minute or, or two on, is Harkening back to the point I made about the genesis of the space and the antagonistic grounds on which we got going, buyers, brands and retailers and factories, suppliers had a bit of an us against them thing. And I think the pandemic made very, very clear that that is malarkey. Mm -hmm. This is a supply chain. A chain is only as strong as its weakest link. Everyone needs everyone else. And what began as a supply side shock with factories shutting down and and the West kind of saying, my goodness, where am I gonna get my products? Then morphed into a demand side shock with the West shutting down, nobody going to buy stuff. And now both sides need each other. There's no way for this to work without both people being healthy, being economically viable and being in a partnership. So you saw, for example, suppliers call out some unfortunate practices that certain buyers felt they had to take, right? Canceling orders and not paying for that kind of stuff. All of which heightened the understanding of the role of responsible buying, responsible sourcing practices in the overall responsible sourcing, responsible supply chain paradigm. So I think we have come out of this with an understanding that a supply chain truly is just that, a chain. We're all linked together. We all have to work together. We will only come out of this if we come out of it together And the recognition that there are much more efficient, much more productive, much more credible ways of doing things on the social compliance supply chain management piece than simply insisting on old approach of proprietary codes of conduct.
0: I think that's interesting. I think people are beginning to find that actually, although our lives have been considerably upset by what's happened with COVID, it is interesting what benefits are coming out of it to use another analogy, it's a bit like pruning a garden, you know, the best things will come through. I think, as you say, if it does mean that people have had to focus on, I love that line, what can I live with rather than die for? I think that's a very good way of looking at it. To move on to the next topic, I think the other sort of big step change that we've begun to see in the last year or so is more jurisdictions beginning to talk about and actually moving towards due diligence, supply chain regulation. You've seen the EU do it, you've seen Switzerland do it, There's been discussions in the UK Parliament about it. Even the US there has been discussions in, um, I think, in the Senate rather than the House of Reps about this topic. So what's your view about how those regulations, when they come in as they will, how are they going to work? What might be some of the pitfalls that need to be avoided? How will that regulatory approach fit with the sort of certification and audit process that we've been discussing so far?
1: Yeah, that's definitely a very interesting development that we're witnessing. There's positives and there's pitfalls. The positives are that the issues that they're trying to solve here are getting elevated and are getting greater attention. And the recognition that due diligence is an extremely important part of the supply chain management process. To borrow from the cynics, you know, governments feeling the need to act because industry hasn't been doing a good enough job, which I push back against and I think is is perhaps an oversimplification. But the pitfalls that we really want to avoid, and this is something that I often find myself reflecting upon, any law, no matter how well-intentioned or however well researched, at the time of its passing, cannot possibly envision every future scenario in which it may or may not be called upon. Because of that. Any law, if you go the legislative route, risks failure in one of two paths, either being written too broadly and capturing situations that were never meant to be captured and thereby creating unnecessary legal burdens, or too narrowly, not capturing situations that you would then want to see action be taken on, but the law wasn't crafted enough. So that's one sort of failure mode for, for legislative solutions. The other challenge is, again, any law, once you have it on the books, you have to enforce it. That means you're gonna have to put mechanisms in place to find the bad guys, bring them to court, to justice, you know, all that good stuff, all of which takes money, all of which is a resource-intensive approach. So, what I worry about looking at laws and for solutions is you're creating a stick approach where perhaps a carrot might actually be a better idea. Because with carrots, you don't have to worry about crafting them too broadly or too narrowly. They will simply be incentives. And you don't have to worry about enforcement because. People aren't going to be doing the things that they want to be doing because they have to do them. They're going to be doing them because they want to do them. Creating a more incentive-driven approach, which is where certifications, for example, can come in handy, right? Emphasizing that the need for certification as a precondition is one way of thinking about it, but also emphasizing a certification as a mark of achievement is another way of thinking about it. So you want the certificate because that's going to open more doors for business. Finding that balance is often a difficult one. And I worry that some of these laws are, again, very well-intentioned, but are being put together by folks who don't understand that complexity of the supply chain, as we described it, and are going to create requirements that are unfair in the sense that they're not achievable. They're they're desirable. But uh, placing the burden on an organization for a supply chain over which they have very little actual control, uh, let alone thorough visibility, is a questionable burden. How fair is it to ask you, Peter, to be responsible for all the crime in, in the UK just because you happen to be a citizen there and you live there? Now, I'm, again, exaggerating that and I don't mean to make light of the matter. I think due diligence is important and legislation that focuses on the acts of it are, is to me a good idea. Due diligence is about effort, not always guaranteeing a result. So if you have a law that's going to grade you on effort, OK, I like that. It's good. It makes sense. But if you have a law that demands a certain result that you have no control over, I wonder how fair that is. So that's where I want to be cautious about. Uh, Yes, governments should play a role. And don't forget, I think one of the things that governments are occasionally criticized for themselves is their own, not abdication, perhaps, but their own lack of engagement where the playing field is under their control. When you look at the UN guiding principles, protect, respect, remedy framework, it is the duty of the government to protect. Business has to respect. And quite often, you find yourself needing supply chain due diligence because local authorities aren't doing a good job enforcing their own laws. So you've got to factor that in as well. It's a complicated scenario, and I honestly truly believe that there is a role for everyone to play in this. Governments, brands and retailers, obviously suppliers, programs like RAP, even the consumer. I just worry sometimes that the tendency is to point the finger at industry and say that the burden's on them when that is
0: not a false statement, but it's not the complete truth either. Yeah, and I think you're seeing there's two good examples of that at the moment. I mean, the obvious one being the weaker situation in northwestern China, where there is no leverage that companies of any sort, even the very biggest, have in that situation, which is an issue to do with Chinese internal policy. But you could also say, look at the, the garment sector in Bangladesh, where the ready-made garment sector is politically very powerful. There's probably dozens of factory owners sitting within the Bangladeshi parliament, so therefore practice and behaviours within that sector ends up being quite a political set of issues that, as you say, companies don't necessarily get to have much oversight over. Toby and I have written quite a lot about the potential pitfalls of, of legislation, but also the opportunities. So I think we're very much on the same page on that. One of the hopes, I suppose, would be that in we've already used the analogy between financial accounting and social and environmental accounting. Over time, possession of a rat certification could be for a company looking to demonstrate compliance with that due diligence legislation could be regarded as the same as their audit standard for their finances would be regarded. I mean, maybe that's a way in which this might move together over time, even though that's not where we are yet. I think that's
1: right. Uh, and I do believe that you'll see some of that. Uh, you brought up the examples of the mandatory human rights due diligence laws in Europe. And among the various jurisdictions there, Germany has taken that step too. And there are other mechanisms the Germans are working on to validate exactly that. There's the Green Button Initiative that uh, you, you may be familiar with, uh, with regards to yeah. educating consumers. and And in order to get that certification from the authorities there, you have to be able to show your supply chain due diligence. And A certification model is the only one that they will recognize because that's the only one that actually validates it independently. So RAP is one of the programs that you can show and and get uh, the, the credit towards that green button and exactly sort of a precursor to the very mechanism you described. I absolutely do believe that we'll be able to be a resource in that context and help organizations, brands, retailers be able to prove to their authorities that they are in compliance with these various laws because they have this independent third party certification process in place for their supply chain.
0: Yeah, I think that's hopefully something we can work on together in the future because I think that's an interesting dynamic. Which brings us to the obvious last question, which is what made you decide to be part of the apparel barometer and what do you think we can add to debate? What also might we do the same next time because the intention is this is an annual process and what might we need to do differently? What's your assessment of how we're doing so far and its relevance?
1: Over the years, uh, we have increasingly recognised the importance of sort of the education piece of our mission. Yes, we inspect factories, to certify factories, that's the core thing that we do, but the larger purpose here is to spread the gospel of compliance, such as it were, and to do that in an effective manner, we have to preach, and we have to educate, and we have to make sure that we share and participate with like-minded organizations that are putting themselves forward as credible, independent, valid resources. It's been a pleasure to sort of see the Innovation Forum's work in this space writ large. And this particular effort was especially attractive because it focuses on the core compliance, sustainability mission at the heart of RAPS, or raison d'etre. So it was for that reason that we felt uh, this would be a great partnership, and as it has proven to be, and we look forward to continuing it. What we are hoping to get out of it, and what we, I don't know whether you call it do differently or do more of, I suspect more the latter, is a resource that truly is something that can be seen as an independent assessment of the lay of the land that provides objective analysis, right? We want to steer clear of hyperbolic commentary, which there's plenty of in the space out there, but be something that is a readable, objective resource that adequately explains the challenges and provides a range of options and solutions, recognizing again, in the spirit of synchronization, that there's not going to be a single answer. Folks shouldn't pick up this document and say, there's my answer right there. That's going to be a very important resource in perhaps a good way of thinking about it is in making sure you are asking all the right questions that are relevant to you, and then can use that to frame the answers that work for you. That's sort of what I'm hoping to to see from this. And Future editions will then sort of build on the body that has now begun to be formed and be a good addition to the firmament on which you build this paradigm of symphonized social science management.
0: I, I think that's right. I mean, I think at the end of the day, as you said all the way through this interview, that what we're dealing with here is a lot of complexity. And all too rarely does experience and expertise and knowledge get properly shared. And as you say, that's effectively why the synchronization process is so important, because it kind of says, well, let's cut out lots of the noise and let's try and create a clearer understanding of what we know and what we don't know, then go off and try and find the answers to what we don't yet know. And certainly this whole research process at Innovation Forum emerged from the idea of someone said, well, we're all working on the same area, but no one's talking. We're all in the same Venn diagram, but none of the right. circles intersect. So hopefully that's what we're able to do with this and some of our other research work. Thank you so much. Of it. It's been a fascinating conversation. It's always nice to talk to fellow enthusiasts on these topics who actually want to make a difference. That's what it's about. It's about practical answers. It's about what does a corporate person do on a Monday morning differently to gradually get us to on that moving along that sustainability journey. So thanks very much for your time.
1: Indeed, it was a real pleasure, Peter. I enjoyed it immensely. And I look forward to more such conversations in the future.